welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What brought you to the church? Was it religion and ritual? Was it morality and ethics? Was it the social connection with the other church members? Or was it a simple call from a Savior who found you and said, follow me? Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled, The Call which covers Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, and chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Thank you for joining us today. I'm beginning a series uh, for us. Bob Cargo this morning will be here uh, next week. And uh, for the next four weeks after this, we have a series entitled Calling. And it really is just about a call that is given by God. And there's a couple of thoughts that we want to get across in the beginning stages of this. And and there's one thought I'm going to sit on this morning, but uh, you're going to see uh, as we go along in this series, there's something you always need to keep into the back of your mind, and, and that is this. There is a caller who is calling. There is a God of the universe who sends out a call to his children, to his people, to come. And the application of that come is going to to unfold throughout this series. But what you need to know this morning is the primary call that God gives to his people is just simply, come. Come and be. He is not in need of our doing. He is not in need of our performing. He is not short on cash. He does not need us to perform for him. He does not need us to entertain him. He is not a cosmic God who just simply looks down and asks us to do something that would entertain him in some way. This is a God that is calling to say, come and be with me because I am where all of life is. So I don't know what your particular approach towards life has been for the last several years. I don't know what your life towards or your approach towards religion or philosophy has been. But what I want you to hear very clearly on the front end of this series is this. There's a caller who is calling you to come. When I was a kid, I grew up in a great neighborhood. And there were children uh, our age all, uh, all across our neighborhood. It was a relatively new neighborhood in Montgomery, Alabama. We moved there in 1978. And the homes were 19. 70s-style homes. They were not particularly attractive. But I didn't know that until I got older in life and realized that there were different things about houses that could be made well, and I never realized this was just an ugly house. Because it was home, and while we were here in this house and, and playing in the neighborhood, it was not uncommon for us to spend an entire afternoon after school gallivanting around the neighborhood. We could be at Ken's neighborhood where that was the massive football game. And I'm sorry, Ken's yard. In the back of his yard were two other connecting yards. And so if you wanted to get the biggest possible football game, then you would go back there. Basketball was over at Lance's house, which was across the street and two houses up. He had the the best goal, the driveway that was the flattest. Um, We had the three-point shot that came in, but that was out in the grass, um, out past the little sidewalk that went into their house. And so if you want a basketball, it was there. Wiffle ball was our house. Now, I don't know if, if you played wiffle ball, but wiffle ball was basically baseball with a bat and then a tennis ball. And then, of course, you could you know, bean people with the ball. That's how you got them out. You just drilled it, unless, of course, you hit their head, and then they were safe. 
But sometimes it was worth it just to get someone in the head, just to get back anyway, even though they're safe. So we had games all over uh, the neighborhood. Then there was also this railroad track that went through the, the very back of our neighborhood. And, and I mean, it was way on back. You could hear the train, but you had to take your bikes and to get back there. And my dad periodically, though, would let us know when it was time to come back home. And here's how dad would do it. Dad would step outside on the porch, whether it be the front porch or the back porch, and he would let out this long, blaring whistle. I would do it, but it would hurt. But here's what the whistle would sound like. It was piercing loud, though. And all over the neighborhood, um, every kid knew who it was that was calling. It was Hal McNeely, and it was time for us to come home. And so being the obedient children that we were, immediately we stopped what we were doing and came home. Uh, and, and the truth is, most of the time we really did do that because when dad called, it was different than when mom called. And I hate to say that out loud. Um, but when mom would call, uh, you, you know, we knew we had a couple extra minutes because mom liked things prompt. I mean, she liked things orderly. And so she got us there a little bit ahead of schedule just to make sure everything was in order. We knew when dad called, it was so disorganized. We, we had to come home right now. Food might not be there any longer. So when dad called, uh, we came home. Now, nobody else in the neighborhood came. Why? Because we were his kids. Jesus said in the New Testament, my sheep know my voice. My sheep come to me. What God is doing, what he has been doing, what he has done since the beginning, when Adam and Eve fell for the first time and then God came to them and said, where are you? He called. And what they thought about right then was all of their lack of performance. They thought about their failure. They thought about the things they didn't do well. They, they realized the things they could no longer do. They looked at themselves, realized the condition they were in, and, and they wanted to try to hide. But God wasn't calling them so that he could whip them. He was calling them to himself because he was the only one who could get them out of this predicament. God is calling you, and he is calling you to himself. I want to look this morning uh, very briefly at just a couple passages, and then we'll have some things that we can um, uh, take away from this, just a few points of application from it. But uh, Jesus is going to continue what God started in the garden. And remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is equal with God in, in substance, value, and glory. And Jesus is the one who decided to step down and to become one of us so that he might meet us where we are and do something for us that we could never do on our own. And that is to live the life that God demanded to be lived. God, in his perfection and holiness, set the standard and said, if you mess up just one single time, then there's going to be separation from us and death will occur. And so in our helpless state, Jesus leaves his throne, leaves some of his Shekinah glory, leaves the, the, the glory that if we were to simply behold it for a second, we would have died because it was so magnificent. He leaves that for a moment, puts on flesh, lives the perfect life, and while he is here, he calls out to people. He calls out to people and says, come. One of my favorite passages of scripture, we won't turn there here, I just want to make allusion to it, is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and it's Jesus, he just simply says these words, come to me, all who are weary 
and heavy burden. Can I ask you today, where are you in life? Are you weary? Are you carrying a burden, a burden of life, the burden of not being able to raise your children, the burden of not being able to handle your job, the the burden of not being able to be the spouse that you know you want to be, the burden of not being the sibling that deep down inside you really long for, the burden of not being able to handle school, the burden of not being able to handle the unknown future, the burden of not being able to handle being single. The burden of not being able to handle not having children. Are you weary? What will not help you this morning is a system or a philosophy or a theory, and certainly not a religion. The only thing that will uh, will prove helpful for you will be to answer the call. And that call is to a man. So one last remark, and regards to introducing this series. Oz Guinness wrote a book entitled The Call. And and, uh, while we are not basing the whole series on that particular book, it's an excellent resource for you to pick up. And I I just want to read real quickly the the opening cover, the the front flap that he has. I think it describes it very well um, about what we'll be doing for this week and the next few. Finding and fulfilling the purpose of our lives comes up in a myriad ways and in all seasons of our lives. Teenagers feel it as the world of freedom beyond home and secondary school beckons with a dizzying range of choices. Graduate students confront it when the excitement of the world is my oyster is chilled by the thought that opening up one choice means closing down others. Those in their early 30s know it when their daily work assumes its own brute reality beyond their earlier considerations of wishes of their parents the fashions of their peers, and the allure of salary and career prospects. People in midlife face it when a mismatch between their gifts and their work reminds them daily that they are square pegs in round holes. Can they see themselves doing that for the rest of their lives? Mothers feel it when their children grow up and wonder which high purpose will fill the void in the next stage of their lives. People in their 40s and 50s with enormous success suddenly come up against it when their accomplishments raise questions concerning the social responsibility of their success and deeper still, the purpose of their lives. People confront it in all the varying transitions of life, from moving homes to switching jobs to breakdowns in marriage to crises of health. Negotiating the changes feels longer and worse than the changes themselves because transition challenges our sense of personal meaning. And finally, those in their late years often face it again. What does life add up to? Were their successes real and were their worth the trade-offs? Having gained a whole world, however huge or tiny, have we sold our souls cheaply and missed the point of it all? As, As Walker Percy wrote, you can get all A's and still flunk life. What are you called to do and to be with the remaining years that God has called you to this earth. Can you say with confidence today, you know the direction that God has called you to. And most importantly, do you know who's going to be taking that journey with you? It better be somebody better than your spouse. 
It better be somebody more powerful than your children. It better be somebody more suited than your companions. It better be someone who can actually help you along the way. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark. Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read where Jesus calls out uh, to his disciples. The gospel of Mark has long since been my favorite gospel, and perhaps the driving reason is is that it's short, and the action moves from one place to the next with a a frantic pace almost. There's there's almost no time that Mark gives in between events that happens. He says at once or immediately, etc., throughout, and he always draws our attention back again to the centrality of who Jesus is. And so Mark is not going to give us any background whatsoever on how long Jesus has known these particular men, but we know that he has known them for a little bit of time. It's not like he's meeting them for the first time. And so he knows a little bit about their lives, but what Mark wants to draw our attention to is the call and the answer. And so beginning in chapter 1, read with me in verse uh, 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And they followed him. There's not a whole lot of pomp and circumstance around this passage, and there's really honestly not a whole lot of explaining I need to do. It speaks for itself. Jesus is walking along. He begins preaching this message of repentance, and repentance is turning from sin and towards something else. We've said it from this stage before on many occasions, but I want to make it crystal clear again. Repentance is not walking in a lifestyle in which there is sin that's going on. You're pursuing your own glory. You're pursuing whatever it may be. It's not walking in this direction and then turning and then leaving this life and walking in a way that is not sinful. It's not turning from sin and walking to a better system of living. It is walking in sin and turning to a person. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not, I'm so sorry for the wrong that I'm doing. I won't do that again. That is naivety at its best. It is arrogance at its worst. You will do it again. Repentance is turning from this into a person. So Jesus is preaching this message of repentance. He comes along the Sea of Galilee, and while he's there, there are some folks that are out doing their job. Jesus meets them exactly where they are in life. He doesn't ask them to come to a synagogue, although that would certainly be a part of their journey later on. He he doesn't ask them to clean themselves up first. He meets them exactly where they are, doing exactly what they have been called to do. He calls out to him, come and follow me. Mark uses this term 19 times in this gospel, follow me. 
It is always used of Jesus in the context of his disciples. It is not used in any other way in Mark's gospel. It's not used flippantly of any other person. Jesus only says it to those who are his followers. Come, follow me. In the Old Testament, it was not that one would follow someone else to discover their lifestyle and, and pattern their life after this individual. In the Old Testament, it was always about following Jehovah or Yahweh, following the Lord. And Jesus has the audacity, and don't think that the Pharisees didn't understand this. Jesus has the audacity to come down to the earth, and instead of saying, follow God, he says, follow me. He places himself on equal playing ground with God the Father. Now, what the tradition was in this day and age was that the rabbis would wait for someone to come up to them and ask if they could learn under them. So it would be as someone in this congregation would approach me and say, hey, David, I want to learn from you and study under you. You probably wouldn't get a whole lot, but that would be what you would do. You'd ask that, and then I would in turn say, I'll give you this amount of time or that amount of time. Nothing wrong with that process. That was what happened um, all the time back here in this day and age, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't wait for them to come to him. Jesus goes to them. Jesus initiates. Jesus steps forward. Jesus moves in. Jesus leans in. Jesus offers himself. And the disciples now are left with a choice. Now, I love this. Jesus doesn't force them to go into this. He just says, come. If you are looking for something more in life, Jesus would say, come. I'm where the answers are. He invites them to come, and the scriptures tell us that at once they left their nets and they followed him. He had gone just a little bit further. He sees another guy, James. And he calls out to him, and James actually leaves his father right there now. Just want to point this out. In this particular circumstance, we're going to turn here in just a minute to chapter 2, but in this circumstance, Jesus calls some fishermen to come and to follow him, and they left their nets. They were literally round nets that they would throw out. It would go down on the ground. It would serve almost like a parachute where they would throw this thing out, capture the fish on the bottom. They would hop in the water and then pull up the fish. And Instead of hopping in the water to pull up the fish, they leave their livelihood in order to follow a man. Who in their right mind would do that? Over here, it tells us that not only did James leave his livelihood, it says that he actually leaves his father in the process. I just, I feel I have to bring this up. I know that there are many of us here today who have been thinking about following Jesus. You have been good and wise. You've been holding out the options. You've been looking and investigating and saying, you know, I know there's something more to Jesus than what I've heard about. And I, I am, I'm compelled to look further into who he is. But if I choose to follow him, in many ways, that means I'm going to leave a close one, one who is loved behind because they're not there. It could be a parent. It could be a spouse. Be a friend, be a child, whomever it may be. I know that there are many of us today that are looking, investigating, thinking, do I want to leave them in order to follow Jesus? And I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer on my own personal experience, and so you should only take it at that. For me, it has been worth it. 
I have not had to leave a wife, nor have I had to leave children. I have not had to leave siblings or parents. So in in some ways, I'm not qualified to make that level of a decision, but I'm here to tell you that for me, the choice to follow Jesus has been the greatest choice of my life. In chapter 2, he is going to call another person. So begin reading with me in verse 13 of chapter 2 of Mark. It says that once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake and a large crowd came to him. And he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and he followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners... And tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It says a large crowd was coming around Jesus, meaning that many people are intrigued as to who this person is. It was probably because of his public teaching. He was the greatest storyteller that has ever existed. And so people were probably drawn in with the stories that he would share. They they were enamored by his wisdom. And so large crowds are pressing in, trying to find out what it is they can glean from him. In the midst of this, Jesus singles out a tax collector. Now, we don't really have something of this equivalent in our culture, but the tax collectors in that day um, were associated with murderers, thieves, drunkards, etc., where they were put in a category of people who were some of the most despised and hated people in their region. Part of the reason was is that they uh, would cheat people on a regular basis. Folks would come through town. And as they were coming through town, they would take more money from them than they should have taken. They would pocket that. They would give a certain percentage back to the Roman government, which they were required to give. But they were making business off of, um, off of people's lives. They were, they were literally stealing money from them, and it, it was okay to do so. They hated them. The people hated the tax collectors. And Jesus centers in in the midst of this crowd And he goes to a tax collector. He walks right up to him in his booth, right in his place where he is in the midst of his sin. And he says, follow me. And and this ostracized, social leper, outcast person leaves his table and he follows a person. And in order to celebrate this, in in order to give to others what it is that he had gotten, apparently he decides to throw a party for Jesus. Probably because no one else had ever had this kind of an investment into him. No one had ever shown him this kind of kindness and confidence, etc. No one had really ever asked to come and be involved in their lives. And so Jesus, the most popular dude at the time right now, comes to him and my guess is, I can't say this is true from scripture, my guess is that he just decided to throw a party and so Jesus goes to the party 
in which he is the the honorable guest and he shows up and while he's there with tax collectors and all of the tax collectors' friends who are all of the same lifestyle as he is, Jesus is just carrying on conversation and nowhere in here do we have recorded that Jesus rebukes them. Nowhere in here do we have that Jesus asks them to leave their life of sin. Now, I'm not saying Jesus would not do that. In this particular case, though, Jesus was just hanging out with sinners. And the religious people of the day who were very good at their duty, those who were very faithful to perform the tasks that they were supposed to perform, they come on the scene and show up and they say, "Um, Jesus' followers, we know that you guys are here. You follow him. Can you explain something to us? Why in the world does Jesus hang out with them? Does he understand this? Does he know who he's hanging out with? Because we wouldn't do that. We want to separate ourselves from those who do not meet the standard that we keep. Jesus hears that maybe he overheard their conversation or maybe the disciples came to Jesus and said, "Uh, I don't really have an answer for this. Why are we here? Jesus, famous passage of scripture. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's those who are sick. And then he says, I have not come to call the righteous. Now, what's behind this statement is a term that we probably should insert. Jesus doesn't. It's not in the original language. So he, it's, what is translated here is right. Jesus says righteous, but I'm confident Jesus means by this, I didn't come for the self-righteous. I came to call sinners to me. That's the text. That's the story uh, of Jesus. That's where um, what he did in the initial stages. I just chose these two passages. We could have chosen um, a number of other ones in there, but, but I wanted to just sit on these two. And I, I want to remind you of something you already know. Um, but this is where we want to sit for just a few minutes. We are called to a person. The Bible is clear over and over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation. We are called to a person. That person is God himself. God is not just a force. God is not just some sort of entity that's out there. God is a person. He exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And how those three make up one, I don't really understand that. I I don't have a good illustration for you to try to explain that. I just know there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who all exist together, and yet they're separate. I, I don't know. The scriptures teach it, therefore I embrace it. And all throughout the scriptures, we are called to come to a person, and it is made most explicitly when Jesus hits the scene. Because every single time he calls someone, he calls them to himself. Now, please, this has to sit in. Jesus is not calling them to other things. What we are not called to is a philosophy. We are not called to a system of higher learning. We are not called to an enlightened state of mind. We are not called to sit and pontificate about the deeper truths of life and then come to some sort of a conclusion. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what we're primarily called to do. It is not enough to be a great philosopher. It is insufficient. 
It's not what God has primarily called us to. He has not called us to great learning. In fact, Paul will later on say that the gospel itself is foolishness to those who don't believe. It is so ridiculous. It is so bizarre. This notion that God would really be in in existence and he would have uh, total control over everything that there is. And, and, and God, who is so perfect, so righteous, so holy, would, it, would in fact send someone to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves? It, it seems so ridiculous. The, my, the philosophy professor that God used so mightily in my life at Auburn University of Montgomery, spring quarter of my freshman year, walked into that class not knowing what it is I really believed, and this man attacked it with a relentless aggression, this whole notion of grace. And the more he attacked it, the more the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and said, yes, it's true. It can appear even foolish on some levels. It doesn't mean that you shelve your brain in Christianity. Please don't hear me say that. It doesn't mean that you you don't articulate and you don't argue and you don't defend. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that what God has not called us primarily to is a higher philosophy. Is that true for you? Have you become so wrapped up in apologetics You've forgotten what it's like to walk with a man. He's called us to a person. He has not called us to a philosophy. He has not called us. We are not called to a religion. Christianity is not a set of sacred duties. It is not a a, a certain set that we are to, to do. You remember in the Old Testament, God had set up a very, very complex and Um, and in my opinion, even laborsome system of which how people were to be made right with God temporarily. It was never intended to make them right eternally or in the fullest sense, but there was the system of duties that were to perform. You had to wash your hands at certain times. You couldn't come in contact with these animals. You couldn't eat this. You couldn't do that. You had to be out on a certain time of day. You had to come here. And it was all designed to point towards the holiness and the perfection of God. It was all designed to point us to the fact that we could not do it And someone had to help us do what we could not do. So I'm not concerned today about any of us getting caught up in the Old Testament sacrificial and ceremonial system and and trying to observe those laws. What I am concerned about for many of us today, though, is especially if you have grown up in church, have you put prayer and the study of the word above your walk with Jesus? Remember Jesus' words in John 5? He looks at the Pharisees and he says, you diligently study the scriptures thinking that by them you will possess eternal life. God has not called you primarily to memorize scripture. It's a good idea. It's right. You should do it. It will help you in your journey. But the goal is not to memorize the Bible. The goal is not to have a pristine grasp and understanding of all of the scriptures. The goal is to see the God of those scriptures. We've said it before, but the Bible is a window in which you should look out through and be able to see the God of the Bible. Have you put your hope in prayer? Believing that if you will pray long enough and hard enough with enough resiliency, with enough creativity, maybe even if you go way out there and become a really good Christian, you'll pray the scriptures themselves over and over again. And if you pray the scriptures, then surely God will listen to you. Is your hope in prayer? Is your hope in the scriptures? You're not called primarily to that. You're called to use those as avenues to walk with God.
We're not called to a philosophy. We're not called to religion. Lastly, we are not called to a system. Christianity is not a way of life. It's not a, 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 a pattern of behavior. It's not a, a certain direction that you structure things in. In my meetings, oftentimes with those who would uh, uh, say of themselves, they would say, no, I'm not a, a believer in any sort of religion. I'm, um, I'm not against it. It's just not me. I, um, I've come across recently a, a group of people that I had never heard this term until really kind of the last, I'd say, eight or ten months. And they are calling themselves um, uh, Christian atheists. And I said, wow, explain that to me, um, how that works. And, and it was ignorance on my part. I'm not poking fun of them. It's just I really didn't understand how you could get to that position. And once they explained it, I went, oh, I get it. I understand now. Here's what they mean by that is they see Jesus. They see his life. They see the direction that he lived in, his ministry to the poor, his openness his acceptance of other people, his ability to, uh, to give grace um, to others. They see the way that Jesus lived his life and they say, that's what I want to do. I want to follow the behavior of Jesus. And so they call themselves Christians who are atheists, meaning they don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe he's divine in any way, believed he was a man who was born at a certain time, he died at a certain time, and he ceased to exist like every other person ceased to exist Here's what I, I have said this. Um, according to the Bible, you are not a Christian. Because a Christian is one who, by definition, follows after a man, not after a way of living. Have you fallen into that? Have you begun to look and to see, well, you know... I, I really need to be after ministering to the poor. It's a good thing. It's a right thing. God calls us to it. I really need to make sure that justice is being done. It's a good thing. It's a right thing. God asks us to do that. Have you, have you begun to structure your life in such a manner that you're only using Jesus as a model of your behavior? Or are you walking with a man? You're not called to a system, you're not called to a religion, you're not called to a philosophy, you're called to a person. Think of it this way. I am, uh, have been married now for uh, 18 years, going on 19 years uh, this October. Now that is a testimony to the integrity of Judith. Um, I, clearly, I am the perfect husband, and I made a mistake sometime back in the late 90s, but that's been the last one uh, that we have. I am called uh, to be a married man. What do you think Judith wants from me in this marriage? Do you think that she wants me to wake up in the mornings and to say, you know what, today I am a husband. And so today I am going to perform my husbandly duties. So what I'm going to do in order to be a good husband is I'm going to wake up, I'm going to write a letter to her and make sure that this letter is saying something that I know that she will like. And what I want to do is to make sure that I have some sort of conversation with her. And so I'll approach her and say, oh, dearest, blessed Judith, how wonderful thine art 
and I'm going to start out adoring her with all the things, and then I'm going to move into a time which I'm going to confess some things to her, and, and then I'm going to move and I'm going to thank her for some things in this conversation, and finally, at the end of that, I'm going to ask her for what it is that I think I need from her for that day. Because I'm a husband, and this is what I need to do. And then I'm going to say, well, I also need to, I guess, date my wife. And so what do I need to do to date my wife? In order to be a good husband, I need to come up with some sort of a plan. Now, what would that plan be? I wonder what she would like. And, and so I, I planned this. And all the while, what's going on throughout the whole time, all of the things that I do for Judith are all in order to be a good husband. It's not because she's Judith. You think that's what she wants? I know her well enough to know now. I know what her love language is. We all have different ones, but it's very clear. Judas' love language is quality time. And we got a phrase um, a, a while back, many years ago. It was a, a person in our lives that was helpful in seeing this, and then a counselor helped walk me through this. What Judith wants from me is she says, David, I want you to be all you are, where you are when you're with me. I want you. I can promise you this. If I had not one dime to my name, Judith would want to be with me. If we didn't have six wonderful children, Judith would want to be with me. If I lost the ability to teach and to stand on a stage in front of people and, and help them see um, things that are true in God's word, Judith would want to be with me. Judith enjoys several things that we do in terms of planning dates and walks. She enjoys all that. Those are means by which, though, she wants us to just be with one another. Do you know what you are called to? to linger in the presence of a man. Are you doing that? Or are you trying to pursue something else? Last thing. Um, the only point of application I have for this morning is to point you forward, and that is to the answer the call and follow Jesus. Pursue him. The rest of the series is going to be more of the practical application, how you put this into practice in your daily life. But for right now, just answer the call of Jesus as he whistles loudly to you. <laughs> Come running. You will not regret it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for who it is that you are and what it is that you do. Jesus, thank you that you became one of us. Lord, I ask that you would give us uh, the wisdom, the patience, etc., cetera, uh, to be able to follow you, to pursue you. Um, thanks for offering yourself. Um, thanks for giving of yourself. Uh, thanks, uh, ultimately, Lord, for just being uh, you. As you would guide us, uh, you would lead us, you would help us to dwell on that, which is from you in this message, anything that is not from you, Lord. I pray that you would take it away from our minds and just let us forget about it. But whatever is from you, bury it deep within our hearts that we might become doers of your word and not just hearers only. We pray all these things, not because we've been good, 
And we pray because Jesus has been perfect on our behalf. So it's in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.